Well, welcome to the continuation of our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And as we're studying this, let me once again make sure we're getting the total background and putting this gospel in the correct perspective. Once again, as I've said many, many times, and I'm just going to have to continue to do this, when we read any book of the Bible, but when we get to the Gospels, especially maybe, we tend to look at these as isolated stories or accounts in some way disassociated from the Old Testament. And that has caused much poor theology over the years. But what we see in the Gospels is the coming into historical reality, coming into the time frame reality of the purpose of God, which he states in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. And you remember Adam rejected that in Genesis 3.6 when he partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, and I'm glad AJ's here because he's always commending me to do a little introduction. <laughs> and yeah, that's why he's late. You know, he, I've heard that before. And so, from Genesis 3-7, all the way, thousands of years, 39 books of the Old Testament. 39? Or 42. 39 books of the Old Testament. We wind up in Matthew. And then all of a sudden, that which God has promised and purposed in creation, that which God has said, I will bring my purpose to fruition. In Genesis chapter 3, not using those words, but in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 3.21, we see that. And moving through, forward, 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 finally coming to the time when the man who is not made in the image of God, but the man who is the image of God, huge difference. The man who is the perfect image of God. You see that, for instance, in Hebrews 1.3. Who is the image of God, finally is conceived by the Holy Spirit into the womb of a young virgin named Mary. And then nine months later, she gives birth. And you see a celebration, especially as recorded in Luke chapter 2, you see the heavenly chorus, the heavenly celebration. Finally, now, this is the one who not only is the one who will fulfill, but who is in himself the fulfillment of all that God has ever purposed for humanity. 
And so when we get to Matthew, we're moving forward and moving forward as we do in each of the Gospels. And then we're finally coming where we are today into chapter 12. And we're looking at not only the image of God on earth in his person, in his words, in his demeanor, in his work, in his attitudes, in anything and everything, this is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3. And when we look at him, and when we listen to him, and when we see the effect of just Jesus himself, not only of what he does, but just the presence of this man, even his presence without saying anything, shatters and shakes. When we see this, we have to be very careful to remember he is not only the image of God, but he is our example of the kind of life and the effect of that life that God has saved us from sin and placed us into Christ to display and to develop in and through us. So today as we look at these episodes and we're on the third one, these activities, these works, these words, and we'll get into chapter 13, I think, next week. Well, maybe the week after next. As we look at the next sermon in a row, we're not just looking at Jesus. We should be identifying and examining ourselves in relation to what we see as displayed in the person and work of this man. In my life, in your life, in the, the life of the corporate church, are we seeing what we see in the life of Christ? If not, why not? And if not, what do we do about it? Rather than just to say these are good stories and move on along and wow, look at he did there, look what happened there, whatever. This is for our benefit. So that, see, the Lord put Jesus on the earth to display himself. And through the suffering of death and resurrection of this man, he would have a people. But the only, in my understanding, necessity was that Jesus had to be conceived. He had to be born. He had to grow up. He had to go to the wilderness. He had to be anointed by the Father, by the Holy Spirit. He had to go into the wilderness, remember chapter 4 of Matthew, to confront the enemy. Remember 1 John 3, 8, for the... For this purpose, the Son of God has appeared that he would, what, destroy the works of the devil. He shows that in chapter 4, confronting the devil. And he comes out in the power of the Holy Spirit. At that point, 
everything else from that point all the way to his arrest. Everything between leaving the wilderness in my mind and all the way until the night that he goes into Gethsemane. Everything between the wilderness and Gethsemane is, let me be careful how I say this, superfluous as to the heart kerygma necessity of his being here. Everything from that point, leaving the wilderness and entering Gethsemane, is a display to the heavenlies, to Satan and his gang, and primarily to the church of who we are to be and the effect of that beingness. Amen? That's how I understand what this word is about. And you may want to know why did I stop at Gethsemane? Because the battle of eternity did not happen at the cross. The payment happened at the cross. The battle for the souls and the will of man happened in Gethsemane, where in that garden the man was tempted as no man has ever been tempted or will ever be tempted again. And contrary to the first garden when a man capitulated to the temptation, this man withstood the temptation of the enemy. And he says, let us arise and go forth for the God of this world, the evil one cometh, but he has nothing in me. You may remember that from John fourteen thirty. He defeated Satan finally, fully, and forever. Where? In Gethsemane. He showed him in the wilderness what was going to happen and who he was, demonstrated it through the rest of his days, and in Gethsemane wiped Satan off the map as far as his ability to take over and control our minds and our hearts and our decisions and our actions. Amen? Amen. Then the payment came at the cross. The payment came at the cross. So what we're seeing here in these verses, as with all of it, is not just the account of stuff. It's the revelation of who we are as God's image bearers. Genesis one don't you see, okay? Now with that, I'm hoping to get through the lesson this morning. <clears throat> Last week, you remember... We took some time in verses 14 to 16, I think it was, uh, verses 14 to 18. And so remembering verses 14 to 18, and if you weren't here last week, you'll just have to get the, uh, the CD or listen by iPod, however they do that. And so ministering to the crowds, Jesus leaves. The Pharisees have attacked him. Jesus leaves. They're consorting with one another how may they may destroy him. He knows what's happening. He leaves them. And as he leaves, the crowds follow. And Jesus, the Bible says, heal them all. 
He heals them. He's not leaving town to get away from things. He's leaving this atmosphere for whatever the reason is. And I give you the reason. This is the reason he left. Because he was led by the Holy Spirit to get out. He was led by the Holy Spirit. And he left, but the people followed. And what did he do? He healed them all. And so verses 19 to 20, Matthew remembers when he's writing this, the Holy Spirit reminds him, Isaiah, Isaiah 42. Isn't it 42? Yeah, Isaiah 42. He's fulfilling Isaiah 42. And so we went through some of the fulfillment last week, so let's continue. In verses 19 to 20, continuing this prophecy from Isaiah, talking about the Messiah, the one who is the image of God. And he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will he, will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. So, these verses describe the method of the ministry of the gospel, the method of the ministry of Jesus. You know, there are two essentials, maybe more than two, but at least I know of two at the moment. There are two essentials to the gospel. And we all need to remember this. I need to remember this. There is the message of the gospel, correct? The content. Everybody, ha, hallelujah, hallelujah. We all know about that. But you see, as essential in the mind of God is the method of the gospel. Wait a minute, you're telling me that the method is as important as a message? Yes. Because you see, the gospel is not the presentation or the proclamation of stuff, information, knowledge. The gospel is the living presentation of the very person and work of this image bearer whom we work, uh, worship as the Lord of glory. That's the gospel, isn't it? It's not just stuff and knowledge and activities. It is the very life of Christ himself. And so, obviously, the, the message is important. But also, as important, I don't know whether I can say equal, but I'm going to say equal this morning, you know, and then you can correct me, and that's all right. The method. Why? Because, you see, the way we do the gospel is the gospel in a living form. And the way we share the gospel, what we share about the gospel, is the gospel in a communication of information form. And so, both of these are essential. And so, with that in mind, let's look a little bit, just a little bit, at the method of the gospel. God's servant. Now remember, the Pharisees are there. Hey, you did this. That's not right. That's not right. You broke the law. Their law, of course, man's law. You did this wrong. You're not doing that right. You need to do this. You better do the other. Remember, all this stuff that they are adding to the law of freedom, making it a law of bondage. And so Jesus answers them. He simply answers them. Well, this is what he does not do. He did not come to argue people into the kingdom, but to love 
people into the kingdom. As he exercised godly gentleness, remember Galatians 5, in caring for the needs of God's people. And so as God's people, we must absolutely be as accurate as we can and as the Bible gives it to us, as the Holy Spirit reveals to us, the message of the gospel. But you see, again, the message is the mercy and the goodness and the justice, etc., of God himself for us. And so that is proclaimed by what we say about Jesus and what we say about what he did and how we recount all of these. But it's also in the way we convey Jesus, the reality of the love of God to others as we allow the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ, Romans eight twenty nine, And as others see Christ in us, they are drawn to the Father. As they see and experience the love of God, they are drawn to the Father. So what does Romans, what is it, 2, 24 say? Is it 2, 24 or 2, 28? I just got a glitch in my mind. Don't you know 224? 24, I'm sorry. Okay, great. Hey, hey, I got a four in there. What is Romans 2.4? Don't you know that it is the what? Kindness Kindness of God that does what? Leads folks to repentance. Arguing doesn't do it. Yelling and screaming doesn't do it, although I have an experience there that's, you know, the kindness of God may cause you to actually yell and scream once in a while. But what I'm talking about is this fleshly activity. Well, maybe if I just explain it a little better. Maybe if I just give them 52 more scriptures. No. We are led by the Spirit. And the Spirit may say, simply say six words to him. Now, that would be a miracle if that happened to me and I said six words to you. I know that. The Spirit may say, elaborate on these scriptures. The Spirit may say, whatever the Holy Spirit does and says. But you see, to get into this self-made argumentation and trying to convince, trying to either teach or preach or share or counsel in such a way that it feels as if I am trying to shove the gospel into your mind so that you will be saved. And I know all of us have been there, haven't we? And when we finish the sharing, we go home Chris, like this, now there is a place of being drained of spiritual energy when we're sharing the gospel, but I'm not talking about that, and we're worn out. Why? Because you see, we are doing the thing rather than relying on the leading and the ministry and being at rest in the content and in the effect of what the Holy Spirit would do in someone. Jesus didn't argue them into the kingdom. He loved them into the kingdom. Now, I know, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm going to raise my hand for some of you here, because I know some of you. How many of us really enjoy arguing people into the kingdom, and we think this is our calling? It isn't. We love them into the kingdom. But we have to understand what God's love is. And you may say, well, that's just God's love. That's how I am. (laughs) Okay. In verse 21, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. 
You see, this, this verse shows us the effect of the love of God going out into the world. And into the world, the Gentiles are being saved. Now, what's so significant about that word? Now, in, the, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. You see, the power of Jesus' love and care overflowed the borders of Israel and went into the Gentiles' nations, giving them a reason to hope in him for their salvation. Now, what's so significant about this? What is this in keeping with? Do you remember Genesis one twenty-eight? I'll tell you, if you don't get Genesis one twenty-six to 28 in your mind and make it the umbrella for everything that you see in the rest of the Bible, it's just not going to hold together in the way it should. Remember Genesis one twenty-eight? What does the Lord tell Adam and Eve? Go out and do what? And the whole world, right? Subdue and rule. The whole world. What promise does the Lord give Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and then 17 again? The nations will be blessed. And so from the very beginning in the creation of Adam and Eve, from the very beginning it was God's intention that the entire world would be filled with those who image him. And so the purpose of the gospel is to fulfill God's original creation intention. And the Gentiles, you see, is part of that fulfillment. So when we talk about the Gentiles, when the Bible talks about the Gentiles, which it does proliferate it through the Old Testament, it's talking about the great promise of God being fulfilled as he has stated it originally. You see, this prophecy, the Gentiles will hope reveals the stark difference between the motive and ministry of Jesus and the motive and ministry of Israel's leaders. Their ministry was keeping the the word of God only to Israel. And for those who wanted to come in to know and be a part of Israel, you had to go through these very strict religious ceremonies. And some folks did. And in doing this, they were binding the people to law rather than teaching a gospel that freed them from the bindingness of the Pharisees. And so what happens when we read Ezekiel chapter 34? It's a very, very sobering chapter. Ezekiel 34. You might want to read that one day. The Lord begins to talk about, woe unto you, false shepherds. And he gives a whole delineation of the kinds of shepherding, the kind of leadership that he is against. Those shepherds who are falsely leading his people in whatever the category may be. And at the end of chapter, verse 10, I think it is in Ezekiel 34, he turns and he says, I myself will shepherd my people. I will shepherd my people. I will be their shepherd, and I will bring them back. They're like sheep without a shepherd, and I will bring them back and gather them to the mountains of Israel. I will be the shepherd of my people. This is Yahweh. This is the God of Israel. This is the God of glory, the God of creation who is speaking. He says, I myself will be their shepherd. And so all these Jewish leaders, especially, and the nation itself, but especially the leaders, knew those verses in that scripture, those chapters of Ezekiel. They knew that. What must they have felt 
on that day, we see it recorded in John chapter 10, when Jesus stands and says what? I am the good shepherd. Uh-oh. What is he saying? He's saying he himself is the Yahweh, is the God of glory, the Lord God of Israel, who in Ezekiel 34 promised to shepherd his people. You see, the Pharisees thought that perhaps they were the fulfillment of this. And one of the dangers of being a leader in the church is that leadership needs to be very careful that the leader doesn't think he is the fulfillment of this. Christ is the fulfillment in his day and in every day. Using under shepherds, if you would. But he is the one who shepherds the people through others. Amen? So we have to be very careful about this. Episode number four. 22 to 37. Let me read this one. And a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And by the way, when Jesus performs these physical miracles, these are real miracles, but he's doing it for a particular purpose. He is authenticating his claim that he is the God of glory in the flesh. And that he is authenticating his claim that he has come to shepherd his people, to save his people from their sin. He is authenticating his claim that he is God's Messiah. And so Matthew is showing us this through these physical miracles and manifestations. But they also are symbols, if you mean, or signs. And when I say symbols or signs, I don't mean that they did not happen. They actually happened. But what was happening in their face right before them physically was a a teaching of something deeper and more significant. And here we have a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute and was brought to him and healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Isn't this a description of humanity apart, apart from Christ? You see, when you read this, don't say, oh, wow, oh, demon possession. I wonder if oh, possession is the same as depression or oppression or obsession or whatever the other sessions are. And I wonder if I can be or you can. And, listen. Everybody apart from Christ, their wills, their minds, everything is under the total, complete control of Satan. Second Timothy 2.25. I think I had the right verse there. If it's wrong, you may help me. That God may free them from doing Satan's will. They've been in captivity. Everything. The only way out of this absolute prison, this maximum prison from which no person is able ever to escape, nor do does anyone want to escape, not understanding the reality of what is happening to them. There's no way to get out of it. Except what? A greater than Satan comes, as you will see, and breaks the power of Satan and binds the strong man. And 
then unlocks the cells of his people. Amen? There's no way to come out. There's no way of coming out. At the cross, God gave, Jesus paid for the price, paid the price for everyone in cells. And then, oh, I have to say this. Well, I'm going to say it anyway. Was Jesus, is Jesus' death, did it make salvation possible for everyone? Or did it make it actual for God's people? We should not ever say, Jesus died to make it possible for you to uh, have eternal life. That's not the truth. He did not make it possible. He made it actual for every one of God's people. Do we understand that? Because if he made it possible, then the real decision for eternal life is on you, whether or not you will be saved. So, Perry, Jesus died, so it made, he made it possible for you to be saved, so that, you know, on the day that you say yes, then you can be saved. He did not do that. When Jesus died, Perry Fry was in him and being saved at that moment. God bringing it to reality at some time in your life. Do we see the difference? The cross of Christ saves. It's not something hopefully people will have and take. It is the work of God to go out and find and save his people forever. Aren't you glad of that? Amen? That's the power of the gospel. That's just verse 22 of this. What am I doing? And all the people were amazed when Jesus, you know, healed him. And can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees saw it, ah, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against it ever will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, you see how he would, Jesus was in the power of the Spirit. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can anyone either enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of God will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Is there such a thing as an unforgivable sin? Yes. So Jesus begins to deal with this issue, and the Pharisees accuse him of witchcraft. Witchcraft. Magic. Wizards. Witchcraft. Have you ever noticed... When you read your Bible, how much God absolutely rejects and has absolutely no toleration for wizards, sorcery, witchcraft, magic. Is there any question among any of us in this room that all of this stuff is absolutely vehement to God? 
Do we, do we hear that? Is it a weird judge? What's that? But the world says, wait a minute. Magic and witchcraft and sorcery. It's fun. It's just fun. It's not going to hurt you. It's, it's, it's okay. <laughs> We're having fun. You have to make a decision whether doing those things that the world says is fun and the world says is okay. And even your brothers and sisters in Christ think it's okay. You have to take that consideration and apply it against the very word of God Almighty himself. And when God says it's not okay, Susan, what does he mean? It's not okay. Oh, but we're having fun. We're we're enjoying ourselves. We're just a little bit. I would rather be wrong and stay away from it and take my chances to be stupid on the day of judgment than to be going with what the world says because we just do it every year and it's okay. We go here, we do this, and we have that. We have these toys and we, and we go. And then on the day of judgment, the Lord says, did you not believe what I said? That's the day you're going to speak in tongues. Hamana, 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 hamana. That's going to be some real tongues, huh, AJ? Now, I know that what I just said strikes some of you as unpopular. Now, don't raise your hand. Some who hear what I just said are going to get a nod in their stomach. And a, I don't agree with him. I don't agree with him. Listen, you're not called to agree with me. I did not say Peter Davidson thinks. I did not say Peter Davidson believes. I did not say thus saith Peter Davidson. I said this. How many of us Know what the Word of God says about these things. Then compare it to the Word of God. And let us stop being idolaters for the sake of fun and amusement. Well, he just killed our next vacation. Well, you know, I didn't kill anything. I was just sharing something about the Word of God. Did I say anything that was contrary to the Word of God? Did anybody hear anything contrary to the Word of God just then? Frank, did you? You're a man of God. You teach. Did you hear anything from the Word of contrary? You're not sure. Well, that kills Frank in this church. <laughs> I didn't mean to sink your boat. And listen to me. And, and if, if you want to discuss this with me, fine. I just don't see any way out. When the Lord says don't, don't. Whatever. So, I was told the other day I do more preaching in here. I don't agree. I think I do much more teaching. What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It is giving the work of the Holy Spirit, the appellation, the terminology, the name of Satan. We can accuse the Son of God of a lot. And that can be overcome by the Holy Spirit. But the Lord says, when you or anyone says that the work of the Holy Spirit is of Satan, what that means is the Holy Spirit will not save that person. What else can I read into that? 
Who saves you? The Holy Spirit does when he applies the work of Christ. Isn't that right? You read Ezekiel 36? Somebody read that? And so the Spirit saves us. He indwells us. And so blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, accusing the Holy Spirit of that, in my mind, must mean that there is no hope for that person. Now, there's no hope for any person whom God doesn't save. But there's something peculiar about this. So if anyone in here is worried, have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? If you're worried about it, I would think that basically that is indicative of the fact that you have not. Because a person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit and accuses God, the Spirit's work of being of the devil and all of that, doesn't give a papumpa. Verses 37, 33, 37, either make the tree, talking about now the fruit of this this um, um, demonic work and the fruit of what he's just done. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he's talking to the Pharisees. How can you speak good when you were evil? See, he said, you are evil. From out of the from out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good person out of his good treasure brings forth good fruit. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. I think I better stop speaking, right? For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Wait a minute. I thought we were justified and either or condemned. By the work of God, not by our words. Our words will condemn us or they will justify us. Now, how many of you feel good about that? Anybody justified this morning by all of your good words? Because, you see, any one evil word that comes forth from us means that the root is evil. Now, what do we do about that? You see, Jesus did not teach easy believism. He taught a very, very strong and strict gospel. The Pharisees' accusation that Jesus was in league with Satan, remember verse 24 by Beelzebub, moved him to compare them to trees that produce bad fruit. Why? Because of their evil hearts. The root was evil, therefore the fruit was evil. The evil was not because of the fruit. The evil was because of the root. We do see that, don't we? How many of us know who've ever done any real gardening work, and I haven't really? I mean, I'm a good gardener. I go in and cut everything down, and it looks great. It's all the way down. No more. No more nothing there. But how many of us know that there are real good trees and so on that occasionally, or bushes or whatever, that occasionally have a dried up limb? We have a little tree, uh, whatever you call that, Savannah Holly in our front yard, and uh, it needs to be trimmed up. Well, it's a big old thing, and it's very lively. It's very much alive, but there are a couple of branches that are dead. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What does that mean? It means that as a branch is dead, what do we have to do with it? What should we do with it? Bzz, cut it off so it won't fall and hurt anybody, etc. so it won't damage the look of the tree. If we have dead branches of activity and words in us, God wants to do that, the pruning activity, and also so the tree can blossom in other areas and begin to fill its shape out in a way that it cannot do with these dead limbs. But if the whole tree is nothing but dead limbs, if that's possible, we know there's something wrong with the root. 
Jesus then reminded them that they would be judged by the words and deeds which they, which, which will be the words and deeds of each person. Sorry, I don't know how I wrote this. On the day of judgment, each person will stand before the Lord and be judged according to the words and deeds. Every one of us. Every one of us. There are going to be two judgments. Two judgments. Listen to this one. Matthew 25, 31, 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in the heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And what's going to happen? He's going to have a book. If you read 2 Corinthians, I have it here, I think, chapter 10. Paul says this to the believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now listen to this, every one of us. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10. So that each one may receive what is due. What is due. For what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. There are going to be two judgments. One judgment, the Lord is going to separate the two, all the nations. The goats, those who have not believed, those who are of an evil root, those who are not of the household of God, will be moved to the left. Those who are of the household of God, those who have received Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit when he birthed us into the kingdom, amen, we will be moved to the right. Those moved to the left, will be assigned to damnation for eternity. It's a sobering thing. However, we who are in Christ will be individually evaluated or judged according to the deeds done in the body. Whether these deeds be good or bad, that means this. There's going to be some hay, wood, and stubble. What does that mean? That stuff that burns away. And the judgment of God will burn away all of those things that were not generated by faith in the Son of God, having been empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. All of that will be burned away. What will remain about us before God will be that work that the Holy Spirit produced in us as we faithfully cooperated and walked with him. Amen? That's what remains. That's the good work. The work that is good is God work. Then we will go into the new heaven and new earth. And we will receive rewards and standing and function in the new earth. According to the way our judgment or evaluation has been ministered to, has resulted in that. Some will have greater rewards and greater standing and effectiveness in the new heaven and new earth. Some will have much less. Now you may say, well, at least I'm in. If that's your attitude, I'm not so sure if you're even saved. Because what good son or daughter just wants to be a son and daughter and doesn't give a good flip about doing the work of the father as long as at least I'm in the house? No. That son or daughter doesn't love the parents. The one who loves the parents wants to do what the parent is joyful about and is really excited about. Amen? How many of your parents want your children to do 
what is good because they love you rather than because they have to do it, right? And see, that's the joy of the Father. So as I close today, remember this. As we walk out of here today, God is watching. He is remembering. He is taking notes of every thought, every attitude, every word, every work, everything. Now, first of all, thankfully, he is doing this within the context of our having already been forgiven. Can you say amen? Thank God for that. Secondly, he's doing it for the purpose of declaring to us his joy and his thanksgiving and for the purpose of giving us rewards on that day. It's a sober life. It needs to be a sober walk. I need to remember this every day, more every day. So how I relate to my wife and she to me, how we relate to one another, our kids, how we function individually and personally. What do I do? What do I think when I'm all alone? No one's around me. God is there taking notes. What is my attitude? Am I unforgiving? Am I jealous? Am I hypocritical? Am I whatever? God takes notes. Now, this shouldn't be a fear thing of losing your salvation because that's not what we're talking about. God forgives. But it should be a very sobering issue as to how we will be used, not only on earth, being used on earth, but how we will be used in heaven and what will we be doing and you know, what status, etc. There will be status, different levels. Greater rewards and lesser rewards. I know that. And it should do, and it causes me. The beam of seat is for the believers. Okay, I'm, I'm saved. I'm go- but it also causes me, me. Oh, this is going to be one awesome day. Today is the day that we can begin to live more dependently, more faithfully, more actively pursuing God and receiving his power by the Spirit so that on that day we have less loss and more gain as to the rewards of heaven. Amen? See you next week.